Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, in for Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway. It's June, graduation season, Pride Month, and the celebration of all things dad. And of course, June is also that long-awaited month of highly anticipated Supreme Court decisions. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. Yes, the nine black-robed, life-appointed justices of the nation's highest court are wrapping the final weeks of their current term. And the start of their summer vacation means we will soon learn the fate and the future of everything from voting rights to LGBTQ plus equality to the Affordable Care Act. In total, SCOTUS has at least 20 cases left to decide before the end of the term. And already this week, they handed down decisions in a handful of cases. Including in a unanimous ruling on Tuesday, SCOTUS affirmed the authority of tribal police and government in U.S. versus Cooley. And in another ruling on Thursday, the court narrowed the scope of the nation's primary computer crime law in a 6-3 vote. So what else should we be watching and just what is at stake? Let's go ahead and dig into those questions. And here to walk us through all of that is Kate Shaw, professor at Cardoza School of Law and co-host of the Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Kate, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Melissa. All right. So can we start with some of the rulings that we did get this week? Tell me about Tuesday's unanimous decision in U.S. v. Cooley uh, about the authority of, of Native American tribal police. What was the kind of the central question in this case? Sure. So the specific question in that case was whether a tribal police officer could stop and search someone who wasn't a member of the tribe, but where the officer had reason to believe the person was committing a crime on tribal lands. Now, the lower court had said no, the officer had no authority here, and the Supreme Court unanimously reversed. So this was actually an important win for tribal sovereignty, right? Confirming that in some cases, and indeed in this case, Indian tribes can exercise jurisdiction over non-Indians if needed to protect the tribe's health or welfare. So important win, but it's still a limited exception to a background principle that doesn't really vindicate the rights of tribes over non-members. So this doesn't necessarily constitute the Supreme Court affirming the sovereignty of Native American tribes and, and, and tribal land. I think that's right. Um, But I do think it's an important incremental decision, in particular paired with a decision from last term that was viewed as very much siding with Native American tribes. So it seems as though potentially, and in particular um, with the addition of Justice Neil Gorsuch to the court, we may be in a new era of Supreme Court jurisprudence uh, with respect to issues of tribes and tribal sovereignty. But this opinion itself, we should say, was relatively narrow. So let's go to another decision from Tuesday where the court actually overturned a rule that was favoring asylum seekers. What was happening in this case and what is consequential about it? Sure. So basically, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals had adopted a rule in which where an immigration judge hadn't made an explicit adverse credibility finding uh, in an asylum proceeding, Federal courts were supposed to presume that the asylum seeker was credible. So this was, you know, a default presumption that favored individuals seeking asylum. And the Supreme Court here reversed, again, unanimously, basically saying that there's no such presumption in the immigration statute at issue. So that the Board of Immigration Appeals 
should presume credibility in the absence of any you know, finding to the contrary. But once you get to federal court, federal courts aren't supposed to indulge any sort of presumption, just accept the factual findings of the immigration officials. So a loss for asylum seekers, definitely, um, but relatively narrow in application in that it only really applies when the immigration judge has said nothing about the, the credibility of the asylum seeker. I see. And are you at all surprised to have these two unanimous decisions on what feel like perhaps narrow, but still consequential um, uh, matters? You know, I was a little bit surprised. Uh, and the Supreme Court actually right now is a little bit higher than its average in terms of unanimous opinions, although, you know, the 23 um, opinions yet to be decided contain a lot that are going to be very divisive. So I suspect the numbers will come down um, when, when once we get to the end of June. Um, but I, I'm not sure. I mean, there's some speculation that the court is really stretching to try to reach unanimous, narrow unanimous results um, in a moment in which questions of, you know, the Supreme Court and its kind of, you know, role in our democracy, how politicized it is, how politicized the confirmation process has become, is sort of, you know, in the crosshairs a little bit. Obviously, President Biden has convened this commission to study structural reforms to the Supreme Court. So maybe the justices want to ward off that kind of attention um, and are, you know, seeking unanimity in an effort to display that they are nonpartisan and non-ideological. But again, it's a small sample size, so I don't want to read too much into it. All right, well, let's dig into some of those decisions highly unlikely to be unanimous. Let's start with the case about the Affordable Care Act. Uh, remind us a little bit about what this particular case is, because my goodness, it feels like we've had more than a few decisions about the ACA. We definitely have. Um, so, okay, so this most recent challenge um, involves Texas and a group of Republican, uh, other Republican-led states um, who have brought a, a case arguing that the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional and should be struck down in its entirety. And as, as exactly as you say, Melissa, this is not the first such effort, but this is the one that's before the court right now. Um, so the background is that in 2017, after the Republican-controlled Congress and, and White House tried and then failed to repeal the Affordable Care Act, um, they did amend this, the law to reduce the penalty attached to the individual mandate to zero. So initially, if you didn't carry health insurance, if you didn't buy um, individual coverage, you had to pay a penalty. After 2017, that penalty was zeroed out. So there was a mandate, but not backed by a penalty. Now, you know, backing up a little bit to the first big constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act, that was in 2012. And in that case, NFIB versus Sebelius, the Supreme Court upheld the statute, basically said the individual mandate was a tax or could be treated as a tax. And so the law was constitutional. So the argument here is that, okay, in 2012, the Supreme Court said the law was constitutional because it was a tax, but now there's no penalty. And so the mandate can't be a tax, which means it's no longer constitutionally permissible. Um, and if the mandate is now unconstitutional, the challengers say, the rest of the Affordable Care Act has to fall too. So at stake here is the whole ACA, right? The protection against pre-existing mm -hmm. dis condition discrimination for the 130 million Americans with some sort of pre-existing condition, healthcare for the 30 million plus people who have bought their health insurance on the exchanges. You know, all the, the ACA obviously had tons of provisions. And so the argument is that all of these must fall. Now, mm -hmm. I should say, I think the whole law being struck down is very unlikely, and so do most court watchers. Usually in a case like this, even if the challengers are successful in arguing that the mandate is unconstitutional, what the court will do is basically say, okay, part of the statute is unconstitutional. We will sever it and leave the rest mm -hmm. of the law intact. But Texas and the other states, and initially the Trump administration, argued that the whole law should go. And I, I don't expect that position to carry the day and to get five or more votes, but I do expect it to get a couple of votes. So I think everyone who worries about the future of healthcare will rest much easier when the opinion is actually out. 
Couldn't the House, which is Democratic controlled at the time, at this time, simply pass like a $1 tax? I mean, it would, it would be, I mean, and wouldn't even have to necessarily enforce that, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it, it could the Congress, you know, it, it would need to be passed by both houses and signed by the president. But right, so Congress could just pass a, 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 an amendment that restores some version of the penalty. And right, it wouldn't need to be, you know, particularly enforced. And you're right, it would moot the case. And so that the question has been hanging out. You know, if if this is a real chance, the the court could actually invalidate the whole thing. Shouldn't Congress step in and try to ward off that possibility? You know, it, it hasn't. The idea hasn't gotten much traction. And I think it's because people expect that it's so sort of such a far-fetched argument and so unlikely that the court will actually go this far that I don't think there's been a lot of legislative attention to it. But, you know, it is out there. And again, it is an argument be- that was supported by the federal government. The, the, the Trump Justice Department filed a brief in this case, and so do a number of states. And so um, so I, I think there is, again, I don't expect the whole law to fall, and I don't think anybody does. But, you know, I, it's impossible to ever predict with absolute certainty what the Supreme Court will do. Yeah, and and I'm going in 2021 with things far-fetched, no longer so (laughs) far-fetched. So let's talk about another critical area um, of American life, political life, that um, could be addressed with legislative action, but it looks like we're going to get a SCOTUS decision first, and that's voting rights. Um, SCOTUS is likely going to hand down a decision on an Arizona case. Um, What is happening in this case and what might it mean for what is left of the Voting Rights Act? Sure. Um, so in this case, Bernovich versus DNC, um, there are two provisions of Arizona law at issue. The first is a policy of invalidating ballots that are cast in the wrong precinct. Um, and the second is a prohibition on most third-party collection and return of ballots. Um, Arizona basically says both of these laws are about preventing fraud, but there's no real evidence of fraud occurring in either out-of-precinct ballot casting or in you know collecting and returning third-party ballots. The challengers argue that these both of these requirements disproportionately burden minority voters, especially Latino and Native American voters. Um, and so the question, so, so these, the challenge was bought, brought under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and, you know, it it basically prohibits any state voting requirement that results in a denial or abridgment of the right to vote on the basis of race or color. Um, and I think the question is how the court is going to, this newly constituted quite conservative Supreme Court is going to construe that provision. I think that the oral argument gave a pretty clear sense that the court will likely find some way to uphold the Arizona restrictions, probably both of them. Um, You know, on the grounds, there's lots of other ways to cast ballots. um, And the impact, it certainly does seem to have slightly disproportionately burdened minority voters, but that that according, I think, likely to a majority of the court is not going to be enough to invalidate these restrictions where there are other ways to vote available. And I mean, you know, that in obviously in a close election, um, even a small kind of deterrent or disproportionate impact can change the outcome. And I think so I think that this will obviously be important both for the future of voting rights in Arizona, but also more broadly, right? What does the sec- what is Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, um, which is the most important provision that remains after Shelby County struck down the pre-clearance requirements of the Voting Rights Act, uh, really mean? And that's very consequential in light of all of the new voting laws that have been enacted both since Shelby County in 2013, but even just since 2020. Um, so this case, I think, will say a lot about how challenges to all kinds of new voting restrictions are likely to fare in the Supreme Court. 
Hmm. One other way that the court is different than the American public in general, not only is it sort of more conservative in general, but it's also much more Catholic, (laughs) Um, much more Catholic than the general population. And right now they're going to hear, like, I mean, they're going to send down decisions around some questions around religious rights um, tied to a Philadelphia foster care program and LGBTQ plus folks ability to be part of that program. What yeah, are you expecting? I think one, it is, one of the themes that is emerging from this new court is how protective of religious exercise it is. And so I think it's quite likely that the court is going to find that this, fill, this social service agency that doesn't want to certify as foster care parents same-sex couples is likely to win. And um, and I think that we have seen some evidence of that in the Supreme Court's siding with a number of houses of worship that have challenged COVID restrictions, capacity limits, and things like that. I think previous Supreme Courts would have said these public health measures are justified and pressing. And so if for a short period religious exercise is burdened, then sort of so be it in you know a kind of multicultural democracy. But here the Supreme Court has said religious exercise kind of trumps other values. And I think that may well be what the court says with respect to LGBTQ equality in this Fulton versus Philadelphia case. Very last thing here, you mentioned the COVID restrictions. How has COVID changed the court? Well, they've been hearing remote arguments that they've been telephonic as opposed to in person. So all of the justices have asked questions, including Justice Clarence Thomas, who typically doesn't speak up in oral arguments. Um, So we've all gotten to listen live, which has been great at the Supreme Court. It's only a few hundred people who get to come in and listen live. Um, And so I think that is done and likely in the fall they'll resume in person um, arguments. But, you know, they haven't really told us yet. Kate Shaw is a professor at Cardoza School of Law and co-host of the Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Kate, thanks for getting in so much and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, during his single term in office, President Trump appointed three justices to the U.S. Supreme Court. Three appointments in a single term. Compare that to his predecessors, Presidents Obama, Clinton, and Bush, who each served two full terms and only appointed two justices each. And that helps you to see just how substantial the Trump legacy is on the Supreme Court. Today, 82-year-old Justice Stephen Breyer, who was appointed by President Clinton, is facing calls to retire ahead of the 2020 midterms. The reasoning? Breyer's swift retirement would ensure that his replacement would be nominated by President Biden and would face confirmation while Democrats narrowly retain control of the Senate. With me now is Robert Barnes, Supreme Court correspondent at The Washington Post. Robert, welcome to The Takeaway. Thanks for having me, Melissa. Absolutely. It certainly feels like the legacy, the spirit, the experience of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death occurring just before the 2020 general election is kind of the pivotal piece overlaying this um, call for Justice Breyer to retire. Is that what's going on here? I think that that's a a huge part of it. I mean, remember that uh, Justice Ginsburg faced calls to retire so that President Obama could replace her. She resisted those and stayed on the court. And then she died last September and was quickly replaced by the Republican Senate with Amy Coney Barrett. I've really never seen a campaign like the one that's uh, underway to get Justice Breyer uh, to retire. You know, there's a Twitter account that called, you know, did Justice Breyer announce his retirement today? Um, And uh, there's really a push by Democratic uh, liberal activists and by Democrats to get him to do it now so that his, as you say, his nominee 
could be confirmed by a Democratic Senate. And what can you tell us about how Justice Breyer feels about this? I don't think any justice likes to have his or her hand pushed that way. You know, we don't know his decision-making process. We do know that he's very active on the court. Uh, I don't think listening to oral arguments uh, or seeing him on, uh, you know, some of the appearances he makes, I don't think that you would think that he is an old uh, 82-year-old. I think he very much enjoys being on the court. Uh, but, you know, I think that Justice Ginsburg's experience uh, and the fact that there are only three liberal justices on the court now uh, has him considering what he should do. You know, I, I was thinking, as, as I was trying to kind of reflect on the history of this, I was remembering that um, Thurgood Marshall stepped down from the court while there was a Republican in office, which is how, of course, um, uh, President H.W. Bush puts Clarence Thomas on the court or nominates him for the court. Sort of over our long span of history, do justices similar, you know, sort of typically wait until the party that nominated them to the court is in the White House before stepping down? I think that they probably would want to. But uh, as you mentioned, you know, sometimes it's beyond their control. We've had a couple of deaths in the sort of modern court experience. Uh, the change that you mentioned, Clarence Thomas replacing Thurgood Marshall, was probably the biggest shift uh, that we have seen in one uh, justice, one conservative justice replacing a liberal, uh, perhaps until the latest one we just saw, where uh, Justice Barrett replaces Justice Ginsburg. I mean, sometimes uh, they don't have a, a choice about when they're going or who's going to name their uh, replacement. And I think part of the push on Breyer is that he does have that choice now. So you said earlier that part of the anxiety here is about there being simply, um, you know, nine justices and six of them right now conservative, three Trump appointed. But why do there have to be nine? Can't we just make it a bigger party? Well, that's up to Congress. You know, uh, a lot of things about the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is established in the Constitution, but not the number of justices on the Supreme Court. And it has varied over the years. But, you know, it's been this way for more than 100 years that there have been nine justices. I think the country sort of thinks of the court as nine uh, justices. And to change that, I think, would take quite an effort in Congress. Could be done by Congress, uh, but it would really require an effort. And I have to say, it doesn't seem like President Biden really has his heart in that effort. Yeah, um, there was certainly part of the the, the discourse during the um, election itself was around um, either court expansion or, as some call it, court packing. But you know, Biden is a, a bit more of a sort of moderate guy, and we haven't heard that as a as a central feature of um, what he sees. But I also wonder, is that because this 6-3 court has potentially been a little different than we expected it to be? I mean, looking at these decisions that have come out recently, have they fulfilled the greatest anxieties of progressives or maybe the greatest hopes of uh, the most conservative? Well, you know, we don't have all the answers yet. The court won't finish its work until the end of June. And some of the bigger cases, uh, as always, are going to be left for the final days. Uh, another challenge to the Affordable Care Act 
for instance, and a, a voting rights case from Arizona. So we don't know yet exactly what this term is going to look like. What we do know is that the court is already set up for a very big term next year. On the last question here, if, in fact, President Biden has the opportunity to nominate a justice for the Supreme Court, you have any insights on who is on that short list? Well, he has said that he's going to nominate the court's first African-American woman, which would be historic. And he hasn't mentioned names, but there are two people who are mentioned most often, a California Supreme Court justice named Leandra Kruger and a judge here in Washington named Katanji Brown-Jackson. He has nominated Judge Jackson to the D.C. Circuit, which is always considered sort of the second highest court in the land. And she has sort of uh, one another thing going for her, which is she's a former clerk to Justice Stephen Breyer. Hmm. I like that connection. Robert Barnes is the Supreme Court correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you for joining us and for your insights. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, so far this hour, we've been talking about the Supreme Court and how the decisions that the justices are making could impact your lives. But we also wanted you to weigh in on the court and whether it needs to be reformed. Some of you told us it's just fine the way it is. This is John from Highland Park, and I don't believe the Supreme Court of the United States needs any tinkering. The institution is fine just the way it is. Nine members appointed for life and no court packing, no term limits, just the way it was established in the uh, Constitution. Hi, I'm Mac from Downingtown, Pennsylvania. There's nothing wrong with today's court. The current concern about the court is that it cannot be expected to be another Warren court, one that was reliably liberal, progressive in today's terminology. It's a court that understands that its role is not to legislate, The leftists in this nation have not been able to capture the Congress and see packing the court as a means of realizing its political goals. But we also heard from a lot of you with innovative ideas about overhauling the Supreme Court as we know it. Hi, this is Sue from Raleigh, North Carolina. I think that there should be legislation that requires that SCOTUS vacancies be filled by the current administration, period. My name is Jan Wiesel, calling from Newton, Mass. It's clear to me that we need term limits, more seated judges, and a limit to how many judges each president can appoint per presidential term. This is Rob calling from Lansdowne, Pennsylvania, and I would like to see lifetime appointments abolished with a constitutional amendment. Court packing also needs to be abolished with a constitutional amendment, but only after Democrats get to appoint the number of justices they were entitled to under Obama. Hi, this is Adam from San Diego, California. I think that the Supreme Court has gotten too important due to hyperpartisanship. I think if we address congressional gerrymandering and term limits, that that would restore the court to its proper place in the role of check and balance. However, I think Republicans have also set a precedent of playing dirty between denying Merrick Garland a hearing and then pushing through Amy Coney Barrett. For me, this means that court packing is a necessity in this current political climate. 
Hi, my name is Simon Spanton. I live in Gilbert, Arizona. The appointment by presidents is, in my view, a major abuse. I have to say the Brits sorted this out a couple of centuries ago. Let the senior judge or judges appoint the judiciary. They know who they are and they know what they're doing. This is Ian from Skagway, Alaska. I'd like to see the legislative branch actually legislate so that the executive branch is no longer forced to hit everyone with a tidal wave of executive orders, which in turn triggers the overuse of the Supreme Court via lawsuits challenging executive orders. If the legislative branch would do their work, then uh, the Supreme Court wouldn't have to weigh in on every single thing we try to do. My name is Gail. I'm calling from New York City. Because the court has become so political and divided, term limits might be appropriate, as well as adding two or more members, perhaps with a national, regional, and sexual diversity criteria, with the object of the most representative court possible. Now, you guys know we always appreciate hearing from you. So you can send us a tweet about the Supreme Court or anything else you'd like for us to cover on the show. We're at The Takeaway. Or leave a voice message for us at 877-8-MY-TAKE. That's 877-869-8253. And that's all we have for y'all today. It's been an absolute pleasure being here with you all week. And we'll do it again next week as well. Make sure you come right back and hang out with me again. Now, before we go, I want to give a shout out to this amazing crew who puts the show together daily. Our producers are Ethan Oberman, Jose Oliveras, Meg Dalton, Patricia Jacob, and Lydia McMullen-Laird. Our line producer is Jackie Martin. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Milton Ruiz was our board op, and Vince Fairchild is our engineer. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer, and Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant, and Lee Hill is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, in for Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.